大家晚上好，这里是正在为您直播的《新闻》Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. I think first of all, we all sense that the credibility and the attractiveness of Western systems, basically meaning European and United States systems and related concepts of political and economic order, are increasingly called into questions. This has started with the refugee crisis, the financial crisis in Europe, the rise of popular right-wing movements, and now also, of course,、uh, triggered by the current U.S. administration. So this is one aspect of our topic tonight. I think a second aspect is an increasing effort of the Chinese Communist Party through media, but also sometimes through scholars, individual party cadres, to portray. The West,、uh, as a general term, Xifang, as a failure, or in decline, or not efficient enough, and also China should guard itself against Western infiltration or hostile forces. So this is the second aspect. The third aspect is that the Chinese population have reacted to this differently. We do see more incidents of hostile encounters between foreigners and Chinese. At least we we have some reports and evidence for that. We also see more like、uh, anti-Western speech online. Fortunately, we haven't seen any xenophobic protests so far. But、uh, the question, I think, this is the third aspect for tonight: under which conditions that could be mobilized, or that could be a rising anti-Western nationalism spread more widely、uh, within the Chinese population? We do have three very distinguished guests or disputants to discuss、uh, tonight's topic with us, and I would like to briefly introduce all of them to you. I would like to start with Susan Shirk. Just write to me. She is a research professor and chair of the 21st Century China Center at the School of the、uh, University in San Diego. She's one of the most influential experts, obviously working on U.S.-China relations, and she first traveled to China in 1971 and has been doing research on China ever since. She previously served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State from 1997 to 2000, and was responsible for U.S. policy towards China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Mongolia. She founded and continues to lead the Northeast Asia Cooperation Dialogue, an unofficial forum for discussions of security issues. She's also the director emeritus and、um, advisory board chair of the University of California Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation. She is a author of or edit, editor of six books, and her most prominent book, I think, is China: Fragile Superpower, and it really framed the policy debate on China、uh, in the U.S. and also in other countries tremendously. We also do have with us Oval Shell. He is the Arthur Ross Director of the Center on U.S.-China Relations at Asia Society in New York. And he is a former professor and dean at the University of California Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. He actually covered the war in, in Indochina as a journalist, and after that, also traveled widely in China since the 1970s. 
Uh, he's the author of 15 books, the most recent ones uh, called Wealth and Power, China's Long March to the 21st Century. And it portrays, uh, I think, 11 influential intellectuals, writers and activists who contributed to create modern China. And finally, last but not least, uh, we do have David Brandersky. He's a researcher at the University of Hong Kong's China Media Project and also the editor of the project's website. He really digs deep into uh, linguistics, uh, the usage of Chinese terms and connotations, and embeds this also in, in historical contexts. Um, He's the author of Dragons in Diamond Village, a book on uh, reportage about urbanization in China, and he also co-authored uh, investigative journalism in China. And besides uh, being a researcher and a journalist, he's also a producer of uh, various Chinese independent films uh, in Hong Kong. So also, yeah, great to have you here with us, David. First of all, I would like to give the disputants the opportunity to mark your territory, so to say, to, <laughs> to offer your viewpoint on the core question of tonight. And I would like to ask Orville Shell first, and I frame the question again um, a little bit, maybe also more provocative. Will we see, let's assume in the next three to five years, a rising anti Western nationalism among Chinese, Orwell. Of course, the future is opaque, but the past is not. And I think it's interesting, maybe just quickly, to do a little uh, tour de horizon of the past, because it is undeniably true that when it's come to China and the West, there has always been a set of issues. Um, and it goes back to the Qing dynasty. Curiously, China, which now the, the sort of the theme of this gathering is nationalism, but it was a country without nationalism really until the 20th century arose. And that was precisely the problem as most of its early leaders uh, conceived it, Nam namely Sun Yat-sen, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, and ultimately even Mao Zedong, that this country was like, as Sun Yat-sen said, a dish of loose sand, because it didn't have a sense of nationhood. And I think one would have to say uh, has gotten it with, with a vengeance. Uh, it is now perhaps the most uh, sort of artful practitioner of nationalism. And I think there are two interesting things that sort of flow together through history into the dilemma we now find ourselves confronting when we, whether we're Germans or Americans or whatever, particularly if we're from democratic countries, and that is the innate sort of historical suspiciousness of what is foreign. And I think that grew because of China's preeminent position and during the dynastic period. Uh, it didn't really have to deal with any foreigners as equals. There wasn't a hell of a lot of competition in the neighborhood uh, in terms of who was the cultural big dog, uh, who was sort of running the, the, the big tent. And that I combined with this idea that we, uh, in a certain sense, was a gift of Lenin. When Sun Yat-sen borrowed Leninism and got a lot of advisors from the Soviet Union, from Russia, what he was after was a way to pull his country together to unify China. And nationalism was a part of it. He started the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, still there in Taiwan today. And so he inoculated China with this sense that there was something 
a, a contention between China and the exploiting West. And this was where Lenin's theory of imperialism was perfect because it just said China was exploited by the West. These two things, I think, come together today this sort of innate historical suspiciousness, some sort of a paranoid sense that the West is a competitor that can't be beat with this new force of nationalism, which makes China a, a quite a potent competitor. All right. Thank you very much. Oval Shell, Susan Shirk, what is your take on? Do you expect rising anti-Western nationalism, expressions of it among Chinese in the next three to five years? Well, actually, I don't expect mass nationalist protest. So let me start there. But to kind of following on from what Orville said, nationalism is a very handy ideology for the Chinese Communist Party trying to bolster popular support now that nobody believes in Marxism or Mao Zedong thought, although maybe Mao Zedong thought is having a comeback. But also, nationalism is a dangerous force for the Chinese Communist Party because they remember very well that both the Qing Dynasty and the Republic of China fell to movements in which the specific domestic discontents of different groups were fused together by this powerful emotional force of anti-foreign nationalism and criticism of the existing government for being too weak in the face of outside pressure. So that, of course, is always the risk of nationalist protest, that it could turn against the party state itself. And it is noteworthy that although the party leaders have allowed anti-Japanese protests over the years, and Japan is the main focal point for anti-foreign nationalism, not the West, actually. But interesting, Taiwan is another hot-button issue of domestic uh, nationalism in China, and they've never allowed a protest about Taiwan, which suggests to me that they think it's too risky. Because if you had a protest in reaction, for example, when Chen Shui-bian was president of Taiwan and step-by-step step trying to take Taiwan toward independence, that would be very risky. If you allowed a protest in China over that, it might be so powerful and emotional and it might turn against party rule. But I'll make one last point that as we think about what the propaganda department and party leadership um, are trying to do to control the narrative, to shape it in a way that builds popular support for the party but doesn't get out of control, you know, uh, present a threat to the party, let's also be cautious about the inferences we draw about how this effort to inculcate nationalism actually affects people's attitudes. And I think as a social scientist, we should really look for the evidence in public opinion surveys and not just assume that uh, nationalism is on the rise all over China. In fact, 
to the extent that we have data on this, it suggests that young people are not more nationalist than older people. And there are regional differences, there are rural-urban differences, and we should pay close attention to these things instead of just broad brush uh, generalizations. Thank you, Susan. David Pandersky, what is your take? Do you expect rising Indo-Western nationalism? I, I, I agree with Susan on this, that I wouldn't expect it in, you know, you said three to five years. And I agree that one of the most important dynamics is the fear of instability. So I think this is going to motivate against, again, as you said, there have been no protests really can, can turn against the party. And there's another aspect to this internal sense of insecurity when we talk about this kind of anti-Western ideology. And you mentioned hostile forces. And of course, hostile forces, we think of this often as a term referring to the ex external hostile forces, the Western hostile forces, the ins internal and external hostile forces. There are a lot of terms for this. But generally, when we've seen this appear in China, it has to do with internal fighting within the party, internal instability, and not with external fears. And the best example is Peng Dehuai. It was the first example in the late 1950s of it being used, not referring to the Soviet Union. And that was um, in re as a result of his criticism of the Great Leap uh, Forward. When I tried to answer this question, as, as uh, Christine said, I tend to get, I'm kind of the caterpillar munching on the leaves sort of of media discourse in China. And I tried to look for where these terminologies were going and how the party was talking about um, these issues. And you can't find an increase. It's been reported, like the FT reported in 2014 that there was a rise in talk about hostile forces. You actually can't find it. We've heard a lot of criticism of judicial independence, civil society, and these kinds of ideas in China. That's very real. And one thing I did notice when I went back and looked at the discourse in this area in China over the last 10 years, there's a dramatic, precipitous decline in talk about these things like civil society, which maybe we'd expect looking at internal situation in China. But what that means to me is that we've really lost a kind of space in China that we had in 2009, 10, 11, still, where uh, you could talk about these kinds of things, and that was okay, maybe you know, difficult, but it was still a contested space that was there. Um, there's a whole world kind of, of discourse that we, we are not seeing in China anymore, and it's all been sort of painted as anti-Western. So last month we had Zhou Qiang, the head of the court in China, saying that we have to avoid the trap in China of Western ideas. Uh, so I think that's unfortunate. You know, we can ask about popular nationalism and how young people, for example, feel, but if this is the kind of environment in which they're living, the kind of discourse environment, how are they going to express uh, their, their own feelings of love for their country? You know, so it, it seems the party is really dominating ideas about uh, uh, what nationalism means. So this was maybe, rather not, and definitely not. So this <laughs> is the pole positions or the default positions that might change over um, the dispute. I mean, you all, you all three nicely laid out the contrast between the party state efforts to impact, to frame, to denounce Western values or certain concepts of it. And you, you all contrasted that, that was my understanding, with the current societal beliefs or opinions or lines of, of thinking. Um, I mean, do you 
any of you see any advocators for Western systems or for Western values, or we, we could also say universal values now within the Chinese society? Well, just very briefly, I think the liberal voices have been silenced right now by a pretty repressive environment. It's too risky to speak out publicly, and uh, the control over media outlets has gotten pretty intense. So I don't think liberals have given up their belief that China, the Chinese people would benefit from more checks and balances in their own system, from an independent legal system, civil society. But I think it's very difficult to make the case publicly in China today. You know, one thought, I mean, again, if you look at this historically over the last century, these sort of liberal movements tend to wax and they wane, but not because the people who are part of them decide they don't, they're not interested, but because governments, as Susan points out, get more repressive. So, I mean, we thought after the Cultural Revolution in the end of the 70s, what had happened to the May 4th tradition of protest and science and democracy, we thought, well, maybe it was gone. Not at all. It came back with a vengeance. And we saw it in myriad different forms. So I think you have to be very, very careful when you look at a sort of, a, again, a Leninist society that has such controls that you don't misinterpret what can be seen for what is actually there. We can point to really specific examples recently. I mean, even within the atmosphere of this repression, we had the kind of debate over constitutionalism. It was never really a debate or a dispute, I guess we're using for our own talk tonight. But there was more on the fringes. It was actually being attacked on the fringes, not in People's Daily and all these, but in websites like there's one called Haijiang Zaishen or something. It's associated with the PLA. And they've had a lot of this really anti-constitutionalism language. And then you had liberals using some websites, and those were kind of tamped down and would delete. But we recently, when Joe Chiang last month, again, the head of the Supreme People's Court, spoke out against judicial independence, there was an open letter signed by, was it over 200, I think, um, intellectuals and, and court, maybe some judges and lawyers in there as well. So it, it's still there. But again, it's a question of, what outlets are available. A lot, most of the websites and media aren't able to air these ideas anymore. So you would argue that Chinese, if they were allowed to express themselves more freely, are there really more cosmopolitan or more adherents of, of universal values and uh, Western liberal democracies? Well, basically, I think yes. If you look at a lot of the most sort of egregious examples of touting this kind of party-led nationalist fervor. You have the Spring Festival Gala that happens every year, and it was very sort of pro-party and nationalistic this year, and it was panned on the internet, on the kind of fringes, by a lot of especially young, young people. And there are many examples like this, I think. I think the internet censorship, uh, say on Weibo, has gotten you know, much more severe so that a few years ago, critics of something the government did could express themselves and then other people could join in and everyone would get the sense that, wow, I'm not the only one out there who thinks this. There are others who think the way I do. 
But now with the management of that space, it's no longer really possible for people to learn about how much other criticism there is among the public. So I think that the whole space is just so much more manipulated and controlled than it had been a few years ago that people don't see that there's a peer group or a cohort who shares their critical perspective on China. Talking about spaces, could we imagine or could users in Shirk imagine an event that would trigger the Chinese population or like societal groups themselves to initiate xenophobic protests, like taking the space which the government still offers for yeah. nationalistic expressions? Earlier I said I doubted it would happen, but it doesn't mean it couldn't happen because this is all probabilities, right? But I think the greatest risk to the party leadership today is not mass protest. The greatest risk is splits in the leadership, divisions at the top. But if the economy really slows down, there's some kind of domestic economic crisis, then it certainly is possible that that kind of domestic discontent could also be expressed. It could start as a reaction to some international crisis. Overshell, could it, for example, a territorial conflict in the South China Sea, could this trigger a self-organized populist anti-foreign protest movement in China? Yeah, I think it could. I mean, the, the feelings uh, actually were the most genuine sort of anti-foreign nationalist sentiments are really is in relation to Japan. Uh, I mean, you know, Americans are loved and despised, but it's a kind of a mixed bag. But the Japanese don't get a very good. So if something happened in the, in the East China Sea, I could imagine we, we could have a real blow up. But as I have understood you all correctly, this would be rather curbed then by the government in Beijing, or would they allow these kind of protests if they would happen? Well, uh, they have allowed anti-Japanese protests, quite a few. And they've kind of used it to try to put pressure on Japan. They've used it as a safety valve when there was discontent. And obviously, they're not going to allow protest on domestic issues. But on the other hand, if you look Back to the 2012 anti-Japanese protests, they were very stage-managed. And I think if you have a leadership that's really nervous and insecure, they may not want to have any anti-foreign protests, even anti-Japanese ones, because of the risk that it could get out of control and instead of going to the Japanese embassy, turn around and come back to Tiananmen or Jungnanhai. You know, I have to say that, I mean, we've all been around this block a few times, but I, I don't think there's been any time in my experience, with the exception of the 70s, when the Cultural Revolution was still going on, when there has been such sort of artfully uh, arranged control mechanisms in play. And there have been times, for instance, the 80s, even the mid-late 90s, which compared to now were incredibly open. But this is a very delicately balanced and calibrated enterprise. 
And uh, I don't think we're going to see intellectuals in Tiananmen Square again. I don't think that's, as Susan suggests, that's what will happen. But, you know, you have environmental protests, you have rich and poor protests, you have various other, you know, people laid off in the Rust Belt, I mean, things we hardly hear about. I just kind of uh, riffing on Susan's remark about stage-managed uh, protest. The perfect stage to manage is, of course, the internet, and that's where we've seen a lot of interesting so-called acts of nationalist feeling happening. So we had the mobbing uh, of the Facebook account of Tsai Ing-wen, the new president of, of Taiwan, by a group referred to as the Little Pinks, mostly young women, but um, some indication that that was sort of pushed by the, the uh, Chinese Communist Youth League. Um, so we have a number of cases like this that seem to be pushed by the leadership. David, talking about a pushed, you, and you also already mentioned that briefly. So on the one hand side, people like Zhou Qiang, the, um, uh, the, the, the Supreme Court president, yeah. denouncing like legal independency, division of powers. But on the other hand, or related to this, we often also find the notion of the China path, China model like which it seems the, the Chinese government sometimes seems to suggest as an alternative to Western political concepts. Uh, what is behind that notion of, of the, the China model, the, the China path, and how attractive is that to, to the Chinese themselves? Well, I mean, China has been, you can say it's been obsessed with this idea of, of soft power and its own soft power deficit since uh, at least you know, 2007 was the first time it, the, the, the word soft power actually went into the political report that comes every five years. So it's obsessed with the notion of its own media becoming powerful and being able to project China's voice, all of that. So I think there's a lot of insecurity about China not having its own ideas and, and system. And this is kind of plays into what I was saying earlier about attacking ideas that are maybe not necessarily unique to the West, but ideas that the party sees as threatening to itself. So it has real attraction in having its own ideas. And I think maybe, you know, I haven't looked at this specifically in, like in the Chinese media, how they've talked about uh, a China model. Um, that might have been a number of years ago, 2008, nine. that was a little more common. Uh, but I think now you tend to see an emphasis on China having its own path, that uh, China needs to travel its own road. So when in Zhou Chang's comments, for example, we hear this idea these things that the West has aren't for us. We're a different sort of environment. The idea of China as being its own entity and kind of circumscribed and these lessons can't be applied. Of course, we, we forget at our peril that China had the model par excellence for almost 30 years and that was the Maoist model. And uh, that crashed and burned uh, at least 80%. But it did suggest, and I think what we see now in, in, in the lofting of the idea of a new model, is that this deep yearning for China to this idea of rejuvenation, you know, to have a, a, a renaissance, if you will, where it restores itself to a global position of greatness. And to do that, you need a model. That was Mao's conceit, and it didn't work. So now there's a kind of, a, I think, a, almost a deep sort of psychological 
satisfaction at the idea that the Chinese model, such as it is, whether it's authoritarian capitalism, whatever you choose to call it, may be winning by comparison to the sort of collapse of Western democracy. Because behind this whole shadow play that goes on between China and the West is a kind of a deep competition between systems of values and political governance. Of course, China has its own uh, and has advertised its own core values. So, and I always lose track of these because they seem to vary and differ. And you'll see these in propaganda all over. You go to any Chinese city and you'll see these uh, propaganda posters about these values. And their value, one of them is freedom, zuyo. And you, you think, what does this mean? What, you, you, almost, you want the definition and the footnotes for this. You know, what kind of freedom are you talking about? And had an interesting case recently. One of these kind of public posters in Shanghai and I can't remember the slogan under it, but it was the image of a horse. And it was this whole idea of freedom as, you know, as a great force, but it needs to be harnessed. You know, so it'd be interesting to kind of pick apart. But the, the idea of these core values can also be potentially disruptive and be used in dis- what ways that the party sees as disruptive. What do you mean by freedom, Tsuyo? David, or, if I could justice, answer that, yeah. maybe it's freedom of the nation to do what needs to be done, not freedom of the individual. Yeah, well, that's a good point. Uh, exactly, and it comes back to the, this, when you have a disappearance, as I said, of the discussion of individual rights, like a civil society, right? And within the context of this discussion, as I said, in 2010, a huge surge of discussion of civil society, and I go and look at the articles, and they're, they're all quite positive about rights and about transparency, all of this, this is sort of disappearing. And um, the focus now seems to be on the nation's rights. So we can look at another arena like internet policy. And China has very much emphasized its own internet sovereignty or cyber sovereignty. The nation as the unit of exercising the rights of the Chinese people. And so it needs its own system, of course a repressive system uh, of, of internet control, but in the interests of the people, of course. Susan Shirk, is China actively competing with its own unique system against the Western system? You know, uh, China's leaders have been very cautious about throwing down the gauntlet and creating a kind of cold war of global competition like that because they have believed, rightly, that a decent relationship with the United States and the West was essential for China's own economic development. So they really have not wanted to behave like Russia's behaving today. I mean, you contrast Russia and China, and China is a lot more low-key and not willing to directly challenge the United States in the way that Putin has been doing. And now, of course, with our sad state in Washington, Xi Jinping comes on the world stage, and of course he wants to take advantage of this opportunity to give China a a chance to show its own leadership and fulfill the ambitions that Orville has written about so persuasively. But there, again, what is he articulating? He's not articulating some alternative 
to the whole system of global governance created by the United States and Europe and others after World War II. In fact, he's just embracing it. He's draping himself in the mantle. So that's not a, a direct ideological challenge at all. But when we think about like notions of the Beijing consensus, like a different, not so much demanding effort to give aid to countries in Africa, like not so much detached to a human rights or a, a liberal a liberalization of the political system, isn't that a different concept? Well, of sure, it's a different concept, but most of the celebration of it, or the propagandizing of it, has been done by Western writers, not by Chinese. I mean, I'm sure they're competing and everything, but how they play the drawing a line of ideological differences in a Cold War way, I think Chinese leadership has been quite cautious about doing that. I, I agree. They have been restrained uh, in many, many ways, but I think beneath that restraint boils a cauldron of, of a yearning to write themselves n larger, but not too quickly. Uh, and to to somehow earn the respect of this world, which they have been in contention with for a century and a half. Yeah, but then, A, if China has behaved in a restrained way out of its own national self-interest, as viewed by its leaders, let's give its leaders credit for that. It's not so easy, as we see in America, to act with restraint when you're a, a great power. You, you touched upon uh, this also uh, briefly. We have talking about the attitudes of the Chinese, about the effort of the, the Chinese Communist Party. But I mean, what is the role of, of us in, in the West, in, in the United States and in Europe? I mean, to what extent does the development, uh, whether to the better or to the worse, shape the notion of nationalism in China, like imagine increasing tensions with the United States between United States and China. Is that a factor at all? Do we have any impact on the cause of the Chinese nationalism at all? Well, this is a high wire act that the West is always on, particularly America, and it comes down to the following wager. Should we accommodate and not stir things up and not incite nationalism? Or should we push back and resist on principle, on national interest? Susan and I have just spent a year and a half uh, wrestling with this question. Uh, and I'll give you the fortune cookie version of the 72-page uh, outcome. We should not throw the baby out with the bathwater. We should try to keep continuity with China. We should believe in one China policy. We hope engagement will work, but... On the other hand, America and other Western democracies have to push back sometimes to defend their interest. And that's the challenge going forward. This is the task force on uh, U.S.-China policy that the UC San Diego 21st Century China Center, Asia Society, U.S.-China Center, we did it together. And we just uh, posted it. Uh, 10 days, two weeks ago. So if people are interested in our ideas, please go read the report. And I have to say I was pleased to see in that report discussion of Hong Kong, because if we're talking about pushing back on values, of, I mean, nationalism is quite a divisive 
issue in Hong Kong, and in Hong Kong they've really tried to push this. You know, we had national education, and this is the movement out of which Joshua Wong, who you probably know as leader of the, the Occupy movement, uh, sort of emerged. But Hong Kong still is under a, a great deal of pressure. I mean, if you even consider you know, hostile forces again, the one-year anniversary of, the, uh, of June 4th, there was an editorial in the People's Daily talking about hostile, external hostile forces. And when you looked at, read into the article, it's focusing primarily on the role of Hong Kong. So I think we're really sort of being pinched now under the current situation in Hong Kong um, in terms of these values, which, I, again, I don't think we need to see as Western, you know. Just at the end, to sum up, to challenge you all, three of you, again. So you all started off with, we don't have to worry a lot, not so much about our systems. There, the Chinese leadership doesn't have a, a very credible alternative to offer, and the Chinese society overall is not really anti-foreign or even anti-Western. But what would be the one factor you would point out if this happens, we should be really on alert, or we, that also might even change your opinion on your projection you just have given. Well, a lot does depend on how the new administration handles the relationship with China. I mean, we could really mess it up very, very badly. Things could get a whole lot worse. And if the U.S no longer shows any goodwill toward China, any generosity of spirit and hope that, well, we can, we're going to stand up for our interests, we're going to push back when needed, but we want to be able to work together on global issues like climate change, nonproliferation, et cetera. So if the U.S. really goes into a serious tailspin, and our own kind of ideological backlash against China, then all bets are off inside China. You know, I, I think you, you can look at it like an arch. The U.S.-China relationship sort of the keystone of the global order arch. And that means the U.S. and China have to find a way to get along if they possibly can't. At the same time, we have an awful lot to disagree about. I, I often think, and I, and I know this may be a fool's errand, but I do think that, that one great missing piece in this arch is the US and Europe. I mean, where is Europe in this? And it seems to me that if it, in fact, is in some significant degree a question of different political systems and values at work, sort of behind the scene, then Europe is very much of a kindred spirit with the United States. And I think it's a great pity that we haven't been more effective in getting together and acting in concert. David Bonversky, what would be the factor you would point out we should be on alert that might change your assessment? Well, I think since Orville and Susan have covered the, the external relationships, uh, U.S.-China relationships so well, we also need to return to this idea of, of the way this kind of anti, so-called anti-Western ideology can be framed by China's own insecurities and always has. Um, so I think 
economic factors could be, for example, could be huge in China. What happens if we see a, a major downturn? And there are always signs and we sort of see little bits of, of seams coming undone in China the last couple of years, uh, but nothing so far uh, that seems catastrophic. But these are problems that could become maybe feed and then encourage the, the leadership to inflame uh, these sort of nationalistic sentiments even, even further. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merricks.org.